From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. It was 2019 when bird lovers around the world learned a staggering statistic. Since 1970, nearly three billion birds have disappeared. That's one in four. The study, published in Science, included data from Cornell's Lab of Ornithology, the American Bird Conservancy, the U.S. Geological Survey, and a host of other research institutions, plus data from citizen scientists. While there are many causes, habitat loss is the major driver. Habitat degradation comes next, which can result from invasive plants, natural areas being fragmented, or water quality problems. The alarm echoes beyond the bird enthusiast world, though. Birds give us important information about the ecosystem, and they're good for the economy. Birdwatching-related tourism, according to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, contributes nearly a billion dollars each year to North Carolina's economy. And bird habitat increases property values. 2020 brought a pandemic, millions of new bird watchers stuck at home, and new headlines about birds dying from both known and mysterious diseases. U.S. Fish and Wildlife tells us that putting up feeders exposes birds to greater risks, disease, window collisions, predation, especially by cats. Are there ways to mitigate these risks to our backyard birds and actually be helpful? Jill Palouses says the answer to that question is yes. She grew up on a farm in Missouri where her grandmothers taught her about birds. They were her focus throughout her college career as she earned an undergraduate degree in environmental studies from the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and went on to get her MPA with a natural resources management concentration. She now teaches birding programs for UNCW's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, and she volunteers for Audubon, North Carolina. In 2020, she launched the nonprofit Cape Fear Bird Observatory to promote conservation of birds and their habitats. She and her husband also own Wild Bird and Garden in Wilmington. She joins me now. Jill Pelusis, welcome to Coastline. Thank you, Rachel. I'm happy to be here. Really good to have you with us. When you first heard about that study telling us that we'd lost 3 billion birds since 1970, what did you think? It's shocking. I mean, it's just, it's a huge difference for when we grew up to what it's like now and how can we, as stewards of the land, protect and promote these animals that we love so much um, that are very dear to my heart. But it's staggering. You, we talk about insect population, habitat loss, you know, the need for native plants, all that is a big key importance. And as we see this community developing, everyone wants to live at the coast. It's a great place to be. Um, but we need to be mindful of our natural resources. Most definitely. And so you have your own bird observations, and then you also hear from people all the time, people coming into your store, people who are birders and participating with your um, observatory, people that you're teaching. So what have you heard? And so this is kind of, this is anecdotal, not scientific, but what have you heard in terms that of the birds that people are seeing less of here and more of here? Well, I definitely feel like there has definitely been a shift. So we've had um, Wild Bird and Garden 
for we're going on 18 years. And at first when I got the story, I was like, I'm going to laminate the birds that are here at certain times. I'm going to write it down and have a copy so I can just share it with people. But it's so much more dynamic than that. So we've seen and heard a lot of shifts since I've been here since 99 and really experienced a lot of ups and downs with population numbers. I feel like we used to see so many cormorants, like I would think 100 to 1 Anhinga. And now our Anhinga numbers are up. So that's been a big shift. Goldfinch population has really shifted in the time um, that I've been here to be a very reliable winter species to uh, maybe we'll get them and only the winter if we do get them. It's more of a cyclical every few years species. Um, we're tracking painted bunting numbers through the observatory and looking at long-term data to collect that and see the overall population health. Are we concerned right now about painted buntings? We are concerned some, a little bit less, but we are looking at collecting this data to really be able to di- do a deeper dive and analyze it. Um, we're looking at occupancy, like how much one area may be able to hold of certain species. Um, they're tagging and banding the birds. And there has been studies that have been going on for many years about painted buntings in our area, and the observatory is now taking that under their wing. And um, so, it's to been, speak. so to speak. <laughs> we're going to hear a lot of those this hour. <laughs> yep. Um, it's very interesting, just the dynamics of these birds. I love that moment in nature you get with something as beautiful as a pain of bunting. Yeah. Now, when we first spoke, you said that backyard birds are, in a way, kind of the canary in the coal mine. Oh, there's another one. <laughs> and this is, this is all you. Um, are we allowed to use bird idioms when we're talking I about birds? Funny. Okay. So... <laughs> So what do you mean by backyard birds being the canary in the coal mine? What what can they tell us? We're seeing the stability of populations or possibly the instability of populations. Um, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, people report the birds they see in this area and create lists of what species are moving through at what times. And it'll give an error or a, a message that says, you know, is this one really what you're seeing kind of thing if it's not right? But it's seeing what the overall numbers kind of are ups and downs. And if there's something that, you know, may crash out, then researchers and scientists can come in and take a deeper look at why would that be happening. Um, You know, habitat loss in this area is a big thing. And I do think that Songbirds really rely on yards. They rely on communities. So helping people to understand the importance of native plants. Native plants house the native insects that our native birds need to eat and thrive. Um, That's a big thing. And we can do a lot. There's a lot of power in our yards, what we could do. So let's get to that. Because for a while, I feel like it was controversy about backyard bird feeders. We heard state officials saying, "Mm, maybe not a good idea. U.S. Fish and Wildlife is saying it. Now U.S. Fish and Wildlife is saying, if you do it, here are some precautions you can take to minimize these risks, which are collision, disease, and predation. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about each one of those risks. Um, Collision, first of all. What, why is putting up a bird feeder in your backyard creating a collision risk for a bird? I mean, it's possible birds are flying in and, like, looking for food. I usually um, – I like to have people put feeders out kind of in front of a window area or put some decals on the window. Even suction cup window feeders can help decrease. Birds need to be able to see that there's something there. A lot of times they're seeing the reflection of the sky and think they can just keep going, and then they have a hard hit. Um, some of them don't survive that. Um, so adding more things to the window area can be helpful. And big Does wind- the- Distance? Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to ask you about where you were going. But does the distance matter of the feeder to the window? 
I mean, I think having something right at the window is helpful. You want to have a distance of like eight to 10 feet or you're going to have potential for squirrels kind of getting involved and that's a whole nother conversation. Um, but having something that helps to break up the, the pain, the glare of just the sky really does make a difference. And in city skyscapes and stuff where we're seeing bigger buildings, that's where the collisions I feel like are more detrimental than maybe a backyard situation um, where you have a high rise apartment maybe with even shiny windows. What about predation? I mean, is there, we know that neighborhood cats are a problem, but do cats sort of, or other potential predators learn, oh, there's a bird feeder there. That's a really good source of food for me. Do you see evidence of that? It's possible, yeah. I mean, cats are definitely, we've definitely seen a lot of research that shows that cats can be very detrimental to our birds. I love cats too, but keeping them inside is safer for the cat. It's going to have a longer life, less likely to have maybe an injury outdoors. One puncture mark from a cat, even the sweetest cat, um, can be detrimental and cost a bird its life. So encouraging people to keep those in, encouraging other neighbors as well, um, can really you know make a difference, I think. Yeah. And then the other issue is disease. Mm -hmm. So what have we learned since we started hearing about birds falling out of the sky? And there was a while when scientists weren't quite sure what was afflicting them. Um, there are different things that have come up over the years. We've been keeping a close eye on it, of course, for the you know on the perspective of the bird store and recommending to customers. But we are not having problems in our area with any of the avian flu or the HPAI. Um, what is HPAI? It's a disease that is more endemic in Europe, and so birds have been able to learn how to kind of mitigate around it. But it does cause loss of life for birds. Um, it's something that's a little bit more um, of a potential problem for birds that are in very close quarters, like waterfowl, where they're eating and pooping in the same, you know, area, that can be more of a contamination problem for them that can cause spread. But okay. we haven't had any issues with that in our in our area, and we are keeping close watch. And I do refer to biologists and ornithologists locally. So we're great in the port city. No bird diseases here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good to hear. And, and part of a way that people can help mm-hmm. to keep us free of disease is washing bird feeders. Yes, keeping your feeders clean is it really helps. It's like eating off the same dinner plate with all your feathered friends. And so you do want to keep your feeders clean. Um, ornithologists recommend about a 10% bleach solution with the 90% being water. And so if you can clean your feeders every few weeks, that would be great. Definitely at least seasonally. Um, sometimes I'll just go out and make sure like the por- the ports are clean and give them an extra little bit of a uh, kind of wipe down if I don't have time to like completely clean the feeder or dunk it in some bleach solution. Do we need to be concerned about the leavings that fall below the feeder? What's the effect of those? I like a shell-free seed because it's a lot cleaner way to feed. If you feed a shell, like a seed blend that has shells on it, which a lot of people do, they have natural areas that shells might be able to fall into, but it is an area where there are leftover residue of food that other birds may come back and kind of pick through. So keeping the ground cleaner, keeping your feeders cleaner is going to help to mitigate disease troubles. So that's why we wouldn't want other birds to come back and pick through it. Yeah. Because, again, it it's goes possible. back to— possible. There's droppings left behind, so making it clean. And you can even move your feeder station if you feel like that's um, an important thing to do, you know, to keep it clean on under the ground. But usually I feed all my feed is shell-free. There's little to nothing on the ground left behind. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I also want to talk about how we can— draw the birds that we're interested in seeing versus some of the ones that seem to just 
swarm when mm-hmm. we put food out. And we'll talk about that when we come back from this break. You're listening to Coastline. We're talking birds today with Jill Pelusis of Wild Bird and Garden and Cape Fear Bird Observatory. Also, when we come back from this break, how to think about ethics in birding. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Birds are facing challenges with climate change, fragmented and degraded habitat, diseases, and even neighborhood cats. Jill Pelusis has owned Wild Bird and Garden with her husband for nearly two decades. She started a nonprofit for bird conservation in 2020 called Cape Fear Observatory, and she's with us today to help us understand how we can be better friends to our birds. So just before we went to break, Jill, I was asking you about how to attract the birds that you want. For example, when we put out bird seed in our backyard, we're almost guaranteed to, within 10 or 15 minutes, get a giant swarm of grackles. (laughs) First of all, can you describe what a grackle is, what they look like, Mm -hmm. where they live? Grackles are large birds. They kind of look like an oil slick, so they have a bit of a sheen to them when you look through your binoculars, a little bit of blacks and blues and purples. They are kind of scavenger birds, and they'll show up in large numbers. They like to be in our marshes, but they also like the shopping center parking lots, snacking on fries and things that people leave behind. So the numbers of those birds can be quite a lot. They can be frustrating to backyard bird lovers because, um, you know, they're flying stomachs and clean out everything in the feeder in no time. (laughs) Um, We recommend safflower seed, which is a seed that is a natural seed. It's got a bitter taste. The blackbirds and grackles don't seem to like it so much. It also helps to keep squirrels down. We spend a lot of time talking about squirrels. I bet Um, you do. But safflower is a great one. And then we do have weight-sensitive feeders that can be adjusted to keep the bigger birds out if you just want to have your smaller birds, but we'll also keep the squirrels out too. And so... Do squirrels not like the safflower seeds as well? Is that why? They don't. And it has that bitter taste that, you know, squirrels can really taste, like mammals can taste bitterness, but the birds don't taste it as much. But the grackles don't like it as much. It's a hard shell to crack. Um, So that's another reason to help kind of keep them away from the feeders by going into safflower seed. Well, since since we touched on squirrels, let's talk about other ways that people Mm can... um, mitigate squirrels also feeding at the bird feeders. Yeah. Squirrels are a big conversation. (laughs) We can really (laughs) redirect this to be the squirrel episode, but they can jump about eight to 10 feet horizontally. So having a baffle, which is a barrier on your bird feeder pole, makes a big difference. You want to make sure your bird feeders are set up in an area that's you know, just over grass or mulch where you the birds can see what's going on, but also is not a launching point for squirrels to jump over the baffle or kind of across. So setting up your feeder system makes a big difference to what activity you might have with squirrels. And those weight sensitive feeders are a wonderful thing <laughs> to keep them away. <laughs> what are some of the migratory birds that we see here? And 
and thinking about migratory birds, does that change the conversation in terms of what we put out Mm -hmm. and what we want to attract? Yeah, it's so much fun. I love the migration aspect of what birds are doing and where they are and how long they're spending in certain places. We're really seeing our Oriole population, Baltimore Oriole population has really increased, I'd say in the last seven to eight years. And they're becoming a reliable winter resident for us here. And that's very exciting. You can put out grape jelly for them. You can put out, they like dried mealworms. They like safflower too. Hummingbird activity has started to really increase throughout the winter here. This is becoming a winter ground for a lot of the northern nesters of hummingbirds. They're stopping and staying here with us for the winter. So that's been quite exciting. Do we have differences between northern and southern hummingbirds? Um, they're ruby throats for the most part, the same species, but the ones that will nest like in Canada, this can be their stopping point for the winter here in our area. But our nesters will go further south. They may end up in South Carolina, Florida. Um, there, We do have a co-founder, Susan Campbell, who's working with the Cape Fear Bird Observatory. She's been studying hummingbirds for 23 years in North Carolina. So it's been very cool to be able to see her aspect and her perspective on what these birds are doing. And we also see so much on social media about people who are just moving here saying, when do the hummingbirds yes. start? When do, when can I see my first one and what should I? So what, what common mistakes do people make trying to attract hummingbirds? For hummingbirds, the big key is, keep, I'm going to make this a shirt, keep the nectar fresh and the hope alive. <laughs> um, because that's the key. You just got to. Like change your nectar twice a week, as hot as our climate is, that really does make a difference. Do keep those feeders clean. Um, That nectar, it's sugar, water, it can spoil in our heat pretty quickly. So keeping it clean, doing the 10% bleach, 90% water mixture is good. Um, I would have hummingbird feeders away from seed feeders by a blinder would be best. So maybe you have a big shrub with cool flowers or on the other side of your you know, the corner around the corner of the house to put your hummingbird feeders because a hummingbird is very territorial. I think they're like a kid who's had too much Kool-Aid and they're just all energized. Um, So they will chase away (laughs) other birds, even bigger. I've seen them chase around a woodpecker's head before. It's like scrappy little cuties, but um, they're fascinating really to see. I feel like our activity for hummingbirds in this area has been pretty solid um, with the exception of June, which is where we are now. And um, June seems to be our slowest month for hummingbirds here. And it's really, I think it's really because the hummingbird females raise the young. The males are not a helpful part of that, but the, the mom is on the nest feeding those kids bugs. So they're less likely at feeders in June. So you just keep that nectar fresh and keep hoping for them to come back because soon they will be and your numbers will be good again. But besides June, the numbers are, are decent throughout the year that people see hummingbirds. Are there other migratory birds that we're looking forward to seeing in this region? And, and what should we be putting out for them? Painted buntings are one of the coolest birds and they really um, are stunning. They're like a rainbow colorful bird. The male has got blue and red and um, green when they're about three and a half years old. The females and juvenile birds are light green. It's our area's most traveled for bird. And Airly Gardens and um, Carolina Beach State Park both have public feeders that people can take their binoculars and give it some distance but be able to, to really get a good view on those birds. Um, that The one down at Carolina Beach State Park is down by the marina. The feeder is so popular with buntings. They build a bench seating area, so take a snack and just set up for watching them. They like white millet, specifically in a cage-style feeder work well because the grackles love white millet and those tiny painted buntings are a little bit more shy and kind of nervous it seems so if you can keep the grackles or the red-winged blackbirds and other big blackbirds off the feeder it allows those small birds to pop right into the cage eat the millet continue on 
Are grackles year-round birds for the Cape Fear region? I mean, is this something we that we see just... them? Yeah, throughout the year, um, but we see them kind of come and go in like big flocks. Like I see them, you know, in my yard. I'll have like twenty for a few days, and then I won't see any more for three or four weeks, and then I see another big number. So they kind of travel. There's, um, they travel in groups. There's more eyes for protection with safety. If birds are in a mixed feeder flock, even a lot of times the grackles will travel with red-winged blackbirds, starlings, um, cowbirds. So it seems like a lot more of them than maybe that particular species, but they'll hang out with their buddies. <laughs> and going back to um, birds being an important part of the ecosystem. I think, you know, we've talked about the fact that they can give us important information about what's happening in an area, as in habitat loss and fragmentation and even water quality, which I thought was interesting. And watching them, of course, is fun and entertaining, but they, they play a really important role in the ecosystem that goes beyond human entertainment. Can you talk about what birds do? Birds are a great indicator species. They're a species that is vulnerable to some of the same things we are vulnerable to. We have watched birds for many years and seeing how populations may come up or decline. Um, An example that comes to mind is DDT back in the 70s when it caused a thinning of eggshells for pelicans and for um, ospreys and some other species as well, peregrine falcons. Um, We really were starting to see what, you know, what is happening here? Why is this happening? We need to do a deeper dive and to be able to research it. And then that's something we needed to get out of our environment and stop producing as a country and stop, well, eventually (laughs) sending out to other countries. but it's a good way to look at the overall health of the of the environment. And what about eating insects? I mean, if you can attract enough birds to your backyard, can you actually, I don't know, cut down on the mosquito population or pesky bug population mm-hmm. as I scratch myself? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, native. I can't say enough about native plants. We work with two local growers, um, and they have they set up in front of the store on a regular basis. But those native plants are what it's really going to take to help get our bird populations more stable. The native insects are so important to the diet of many species. A lot of songbirds eat up, upwards of 50% insects, even hummingbirds. And so it's really important to be thinking about what we can do as community members, what we can be doing as homeowners or renters to kind of put back into this environment that we all moved here and wanted to move here because it's so awesome, um, you know, to help these animals out. This area has become a really great um, group of bird watchers, of people, of bird enthusiasts, people yeah. getting into it. And so it's like, we want to support that population and that love of these animals, I think. Jill Pelusis of Wild Bird and Garden and Cape Fear Bird Observatory is my guest today. You're listening to Coastline. Also, I thought this one was was so obvious when you say it, but birds spread seeds. Mm-hmm. And so that can be a good thing or a bad thing. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about native plants or invasive plants. Yes, they're little gardeners in their own ways. (laughs) We call it a volunteer plant when a bird has spread a seed and something has sprouted out of that. Um, But it is interesting. So the more natives that we can be including in our yard, then the more opportunities that our birds have to spread more native seeds as they're eating and their waste produces, you know, they drop those seeds behind. Um, It is important to add more natives to your landscape. Even if you are a lover of, you know, some exotic plants, try to do a balance and add some more natives in there, too. They really are crucial. And they are meant to grow here. So many people move, or time has shown that they can grow here. So many people move here and are like, what can I grow in the sand? Well, these native plants are tried and true. And so they can make it through our crazy weather and our crazy drought and our sandy soil. Um, But they're important to have. Could you just name a couple of good ideas of native plant? Like when people come into the bird store, what do you tell them? 
people who are new here and yeah. what they should be sticking in their backyard instead of just sod. Right. We, um, I love beauty berry. That's always a great plant. It has these beautiful purple berries. It's very iconic for our native birds. People, some people really get into birds through photography and by having the native plants, it's going to draw birds into your yard and you'll get that beautiful picture with those purple berries. Um, I love echinaceas. Those are a wonderful thing. I've got quite a few of those in my yard. Um, there are a lot of cool native hibiscus that I love and the hummingbirds are really interested. Um, and they're just easy. You put them in the ground, kind of water them and get them established for those first few weeks and they do their things and thrive for years to come. Do people really need, if they want to attract, say, bluebirds or wood ducks, I know that there are specialized boxes for this that probably every bird store sells, but do people really need specialized sorts of habitats to put up to attract those kinds of birds? I mean, ideally, if we had a lot more wildlands than we do, we don't need a bird store. We can go about our, our birds will have plenty to thrive and to be able to survive on, but that is not the case. And we're not going back to having a large amount of wildlands left. There's less than 3% of wildlands left in our country. We're not, we're not turning the corner. So in nature, birds would nest in old cavities. A woodpecker makes a hole in a dead tree or a portion of a dead tree, and the next year makes a, one in a different tree in a different tree. So that was creating all of these different nest opportunities for cavity nesters like bluebirds and nuthatches and chickadees. Um, a lot of homeowners come in, we take out dead trees. We take out portions of dead trees. It's not the aesthetic that we are wanting or maybe looking for. And so I feel like by putting out birdhouses, it's giving back what we've taken out of nature. Um, and so that's really crucial. And there are great ways to set up a bluebird house for the optimal success of the bird and the success of the person um, who's putting it up because we get so excited about these birds. Bluebirds are a really big topic for us in the store. They um, can do three broods back to back to back. Um, so they start as early as March. They go as late as August. Um, and you can hatch 12 or 15 babies out of one house, which is very rewarding for people. What's, pulls on the heartstrings. Yeah. <laughs> what is the best way to to set up a bluebird house for success? The best way is to do it on a free, to put up your birdhouse on a freestanding pole, and you want underneath the pole to just be grass or mulch, so there's nowhere that a predator can hide. Ideally, a bluebird wants to stand on the roof of that house and look, you know, 360 to make sure there's nothing that could be making them nervous for their youngsters. They. Um, want to not be facing south here. The local ornithologists say don't have your bluebirds facing south because it gets too much light throughout the day and it's actually a little bit too hot. You want to make sure the birdhouse is intact, like the hole has not been chewed up by a squirrel trying to make it bigger or a woodpecker trying to peck it bigger. So make sure the hole is intact. Otherwise, your airflow is a lot more for your female bluebird to have to deal with and the potential for predators. So we have ours up on a freestanding pole, we did put a baffle to keep squirrels and other animals. We even have baffles to keep raccoons out, which has been a topic of conversation lately at the store. Um, Are we seeing more raccoons? We're seeing more raccoons. It's as we and... develop the area more and more, the areas that had trees might not be there, so they're popping up in yards because that's where they've got to go. So we're having to suggest more raccoon baffles to keep them from climbing up and getting involved. You know, deer, <laughs> sometimes you have to raise your bird hat feeders up a little bit more to keep them from being involved involved. Um, but bluebirds are stunning. They're a really fun bird to get to see. The female incubates and
and I call it temperature regulating as much as anything, especially when you get into the July and August melt your face off season, I call it um, here. <laughs> um, so the mama might have, she might be standing on top of the birdhouse. She might be sitting just with her head and shoulders out of the birdhouse. She's just keeping the kids safe, but doesn't necessarily have to be down on them for incubating during the day. She does need to be on there overnight, but the dad is working so hard. He's um, the male bluebird will gather the food. He will take it to the kids that are in the nest. He'll take it to the youngsters that have already fledged. So by August, he's feeding potentially 15 kids and a wife. <laughs> so they're very busy. Adding feeders to the yard does give that um, extra amount of you know speed for him. He has a better beak to food ratio that he can get to the kids quicker and give them a a bite while he's off then foraging for native insects as well. So bird feeders can be very helpful. Some birds, like bluebirds, are not good shell crackers. So having no shells will increase your activity of bluebirds in the yard as well. You said that occasionally woodpeckers can come along and try to make that bluebird hole a little bit bigger. Do you, do people get woodpeckers nesting in yes. in their yards. We do. I mean, they woodpeckers are a little bit larger and typically need a bigger house. The bluebird house has a one and a half inch diameter opening, but woodpeckers need a little more space. So they may try to peck in and use your birdhouse, especially if there's no dead trees or portions of dead trees for them to use otherwise. But we definitely have nesting woodpeckers in our area. Um, we get about seven species of woodpeckers throughout the year here, and a couple of them are wintertime migrants, but some of them are year-round individuals. What are the ones that that will nest in an actual bird feeder. Because we know, for instance, the red cockaded woodpecker loves longleaf pine. Mm -hmm. And the fate of both of those things, longleaf pine forests and red cockaded woodpeckers, are tied together. Yeah. So we probably wouldn't see one of those in a birdhouse. No, not in a birdhouse. So if you're a bird that goes in a birdhouse, they're called cavity nesters. So a woodpecker is a cavity nester, chickadees, bluebirds, uh, brown-headed nuthatches. The woodpeckers, they're more likely to use trees and portions of trees. And yeah, the red cockadids are very associated with the longleaf pine ecosystem. They like a tree that's 60 to 80 years old um, that they can bore into. It's a generational kind of nesting um, habit with those birds, but they're a very interesting bird and they are an endangered species. And we do have them around the area. There's a population in Boiling Springs, up at Fort Bragg, Camp Lejeune. Um, So it's been interesting to kind of see what that's like. So what kind of woodpecker would we be likely to see then taking over a a birdhouse? Well, the most popular or in quantity, I guess, in our area would be the red-bellied woodpecker. The red-bellied woodpecker is more likely to be at your feeders, first of all, and then may try to peck that hole a little bigger to get in. They're pretty common feeder birds for us and pretty regulars. Um, uh, Some of those individuals may migrate away from us, but then we get the northerners who come down. So we have that species throughout the year. Lots of people see them. They're easy to spot with your binoculars because they are bigger. Um, We also get downy woodpeckers. So red-bellies and downy woodpeckers are our two most common woodpeckers in the area. Now, recently, uh, we had, I guess it was a mockingbird fledgling Mm -hmm. land in the grass. And our dog, I'm sorry, picked him up in his mouth and ran around a little bit. Uh, We got the bird away, no obvious injuries, and we haven't seen the baby bird or the fledgling since. What uh, are people seeing? Is that sort of a normal thing to see is fledglings trying to fly and landing in the grass and uh, yeah, trying again. I mean, how long does it take a bird to learn to fly? <laughs> it takes a little bit of time. Um, it's Yeah, birds, are, they're 
a lot of wildlife, their purpose is to reproduce their own DNA. So they know that they face a lot. So that's why they have clutches of birds that might be four or five, you know, per nest. And some of them even have multiple clutches in one season because it takes a lot of youngsters to have some that actually survive and make it to adulthood. Um, so sometimes it feels like the cards are stacked against them. But by putting out the houses and the feeders and keeping things clean, it does make a difference. It does help our, um, our songbirds for sure. You're listening to Coastline. We're talking birds with Jill Palousas today. After this short break, some of the more popular questions that come up among local backyard birders, as well as bird ethics and the Cape Fear Bird Observatory. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Jill Palusas and her husband bought Wild Bird and Garden in Wilmington nearly two decades ago. Since then, they've started their own family. She's earned her master's degree with a concentration in natural resources management, started a nonprofit dedicated to conservation of birds and their habitat, and she teaches at UNCW's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute. Jill Palusas. Bird ethics is an important topic for you for understandable reasons. What are some of the things that uh, maybe should be obvious but aren't? When you say them out loud, people go, oh, wow, never thought about that. Yeah, good idea. (laughs) One of them is running through a flock of birds, like in the old Seinfeld episodes. (laughs) They're scattering birds as they go. Let these animals. Like seagulls on on the beach. Yes, exactly. Like, you don't want to do that. You don't want to run through a flock of birds. Well, hold on. So so what great exercise for my dog, because he's (laughs) never going to catch them. So what's the problem? It's the amount of energy expenditure it takes these birds to just get out of the way of your fun-loving, exercising dog. Some of these birds may have come down from the Arctic. They need rest. They need a break. They need to just forage and eat and take a small little nap. Um, So us, like, you know, having our animals out, anything, even the sweetest four-legged dog, who I love dogs, and have one, um, it's, it's a threat to birds and they come up off their nest, they come out of their habitat, they check out what's going on, they want to see and make sure that their kids are safe, their territory is safe. So it's it's exhausting. It's exhausting in you know maintaining what they have um, and also just getting back to having another rest. What if you have a dog that comes, your dog comes through, then three kids and then another, I mean, it could go on all day, especially with these heavily trafficked beach areas um, that we have. So ethics, I think, play a big part in birding and maybe more so than many people realize. Some of it has to do 
do with just how, well, how many of us there are humans and how that encroaches upon lands for birds and, and habitat. Um, but some of it has to do with technology now. We're starting to talk more about apps and people using apps with birds. One of our favorite is Merlin. It's an easy to use app. It's through the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. It's free. Um, you can put, you can record and have a list of the birds you're seeing and find out what's coming through your area. So that's really great. But you don't want to play those calls in the field during nesting season. It can be completely detrimental to birds. So you're outside pressing the app, the caller for a cardinal, let's just say, on your phone. Um, that male cardinal who has been working hard to defend his territory, feed his female, feed maybe their youngsters, is now looking for the other male in his territory, which is a human with their cell phone, perhaps. Um, and that's becoming more and more common, that people have apps on their phone, more people are getting excited. Um, some of the national... So it's stressing these birds out more. stressing them out. And it can actually cause nest failure in areas that are very popular, like like the Great Smoky Mountain National Forest or some of the state parks even um, where these birds might have, you know, somebody coming down the trail every 20 or 30 minutes playing a call. And so it's really can be quite exhausting to them. So we don't encourage people to use callers in the field. The best thing that you can do with the caller is like, oh, I really think I want to go out and see a painted bunting. I'm going to play it in the car so it's fresh in my mind right before I get out and start going on my bird walk. Such an important idea. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other things that that people do that they're probably not aware of that could be harming? Photography. So a lot of times people get into birding for different reasons, and I always find that to be very interesting. A lot of um, people get into it for the first time when they retire because, like, I have time on my hands. I can now, you know, take a moment with nature. Some people get into it through photography. Um, Some people get into it from just writing a list of everything they see as fast as they can and keep on going. A lot of the people I feel like that, you know, do take pictures might have been photographers first and then become bird watchers later because birds are wonderful subjects. But trying to like encroach upon birds, whether it's through photography or any, you know, just watching and viewing um, can be hard on them. So if you want to try to get the best shot, you know, give them their space, let them be doing what they would do naturally. And you might see, you know, feeding behavior or mating behavior, something you would see less likely if you're walking in on them and pushing in on their habitat too fast. I feel like when I look at pictures of birds, I'm looking for the posturing of the bird. Like, is the great horned owl showing the white on its chin, which is a warning sign? Like, okay, that photographer got too close. To me, that's not a good picture. It's because it means the bird is stressed out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we there's this new enthusiasm about connecting people with birds. And, and part of it, I think, just happened naturally during the pandemic when so many people were stuck at home and yeah. started looking around at wildlife. But even the New York Times now is sponsoring this community bird watching program. Of course, you've mentioned Cornell's Ornithology Lab several times. They have an app and they also encourage people to submit mm-hmm. data. Why so much interest and why is there this push to get people interested in birds and bird watching? Well, as you as we talked about at the beginning of our episode was that's a billion dollar tourist industry that birders coming to your area for an event, a festival or just because we have awesome painted buntings and people want to come and see those. That's heads and beds. That's people spending money in our community, in our hotels, in our restaurants, at our mom and pop shops um, and People see the the importance of that. Lawmakers see the importance. And birders are starting to have a movement, especially, I think, since the pandemic when 
you know, we had that little moment of our own nature in our own yard kind of helped us keep our sanity um, when it might have been hanging on a thread. Um, but people are seeing that this is getting more and more exciting for people and people travel for these animals. It's very cool. And this is a great place for birds, this area. Because we have backyard birds and we have seabirds. Yes. And marsh birds. Mm -hmm. And wintering, the wintering population here is very interesting. And ducks, we have wintering ducks here. So our numbers and our species um, variety is big. And that keeps birders on their toes. It keeps people interested in seeing what we have. Um, It's a wonderful place for birds. A lot of aha moments, I feel like, happen in the nature around here. Now, Jill Palousas, you you may have been a little bit of an anomaly with your grandmother's teaching you on the Missouri farm about birds. So you learned young and were always interested. But I've sort of anecdotally heard from people that it's something they seem to get into when they get older. (laughs) It's it doesn't always it doesn't seem to be a huge draw across generations. Do you know why that is? Um, I think some of it is time. I think a lot of young people are just busy, like running around trying to, you know, pay for student loans and go to classes and maintain maybe multiple jobs. Um, And then when we have a chance to slow down later on in life, we have that moment with nature. We have that moment to enjoy things that we might not have ever, you know, really looked at before. And around here, I think... uh, the bird watching community, or at least the one that seems to be involved in Audubon and maybe frequent the Wild Bird and Garden Store, it's it's very white. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. I think that we need to work on more diversity in the bird community. I think that is important. Um, with the Cape Fear Bird Observatory, we are looking at both like um, having a better demographic of many different types of participants in our programs, as well as our our staffing and our group. Um, We're also looking at families and trying to bring in more young people. One of the things I'd really like to see with the Cape Fear Bird Observatory and our goal of long-term data collection and research is to really be able to um, foster budding ornithologists or help plant that seed in people who might want to go down this career path of birds. Um, We work with a Another nonprofit out of Raleigh called Field Inclusive, which was started by um, a couple gals who are African-American, and they really are working to build up minorities in the field of science. Um, So we were able to get an intern working with those gals this summer, and we're very excited to see just how, how much this could maybe launch a career for somebody down the line. Now, you talked about specifically banding painted buntings and you're you're really focused on collecting data right now on painted buntings where will you share your data what will the data that you collect than mean. They're working with um, they're working with different organizations and groups. There's a professor out of a university in Kentucky that was a professor here at UNCW. They're working with him with occup- occupancy data to see how much how many birds can be occupied in one kind of area. So that's interesting. We're working with Modus Towers, which is a um, these towers that they're setting up. They started in Canada and kind of can go kind of pushing throughout the country now. We've got three locally, um, and those are able to kind of give us a little blip as birds fly over to see different kind of species. There's a lot of different work that can be done. Um, We're looking at 
the potential for overwintering peanut buntings and what those numbers might look like. And then we'll start looking at nesting behavior too. So we have a lot of our sites on a lot of things. Um, our goals down the line would be to be published. Our goals down the line are to find funding for more staff and to really build up this program to help more young ornithologists come down this career. This area is so great for birds. It should be a great area for bird researchers. And it is. And I think it will continue to even be more so. Yeah. Now, the Cornell Ornithology Lab takes data from citizen scientists. It offers ways that backyard birders can can become better friends to birds. If if you could leave people with, say, three things that they could do that would make a difference, even if they didn't want to become bird enthusiasts, but just something that would help our feathered friends, the bird population here, what would some of those kind of big rocks in the jar be for you? The big rocks in the jar. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, like I said, I just can't say enough about about native plants. I think that's really, it's crucial. It's key and it's crucial and it's putting back into the habitat as we are moving here and developing this area. Those are really important. I do think birdhouses and feeders are important. It gives those birds that extra opportunity that they may not find in wildlands or in nature. If they have a house to raise their young that they feel is safe, it's baffled, it keeps the squirrels out, it keeps other animals out, that's important too. And I do think feeding is important. I think, you know, giving those parents just a little extra boost or pick me up um, to then have the energy to go out and find more insects is very is very helpful, especially as the urban landscape metastasizes Absolutely. around here. Yeah. Now you told me about you called it your spark bird. I think of it as a gateway bird, um, as not a birding expert here at all. What is a spark bird, and what was yours? A spark bird is um, really like what got you into birds. It's that aha moment of oh my gosh, these animals are so cool. Um, when I was an undergrad, I did my internship at Fort Fisher. I worked for the state recreation area for about eight months and was this the um, worked with shorebirds and with the sea turtle population. I was the first person at the park. We did 10-day stretches at a time, and I'd be out there at 5 or 5.30 every morning. And we had um, a purple gallon. I say we. It was just me by myself. No one else was at the park (laughs) at the time at 5.30 in the morning. Um, But I had a purple gallinule that came out, which is a beautifully awesome bird. He's like a chicken-sized purple bird with ginormous feet. Okay, say say the name of the bird again. A purple gallinule. Mm -hmm, Like G-A-L-L-I-N-U-L-E. Okay. Um, so a chicken-sized purple bird. <laughs> it was something to see. And I was telling my coworkers, like, hey, I'm seeing this purple bird. I looked it up and finally found it in the bird book. Um, and they're like, yeah, you know, like, we, we really believe you. <laughs> so they um, didn't believe that's what you were not seeing. Not so much. And it wasn't one that we see here on a really regular basis, but it came out for about four or five days, maybe a little bit more than that, like every morning super early and kind of did a little chicken neck walking and came across the road and back again into the tall grasses. And I was able to be able to see it. I looked forward to that bird every morning and kind of the joking that came from of, you know, those guys not believing me and seeing what we saw. Like it just created this something in me that I – I live and breathe these animals now. It's fun. It's interesting. It's dynamic. It gives you that moment in nature that just allows you to have a pause and a break and kind of a sense of calm. And I love it. And you may just have 15 seconds with that animal in your whole life and their whole life, but it's a special thing. So a purple gallinule is a really unique spark bird, I would think. What When you meet people out at, the, you know, UNCW's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute or Audubon or, or at the store, Wild Bird and Garden, 
what are some popular spark birds around here? I mean, what what just really opened the door for someone who said, yeah, I always thought birds were cool, but I never really got it. And then that bird comes along and they go, oh, oh yeah, that's what it is. It's so exciting. I love that. I think it's so exciting when you get into people's like excitement for birds as well. Bluebirds are a big one. Our eastern bluebirds are a really big one because they are, like I said, they can do three nests back to back. They're one that can stay in your yard. They're non-migratory. We can have the same individuals all year round. People can have that moment with a wild animal in their own yard, and you can you can tell almost if it's the same individual as the years can go by. Like, where do they have a perching point that they love to stand, a lookout point? Where do they stage for their kids to feed? Um, it's just interesting. And, of course, hummingbirds. People just love those so much. They're so <laughs> cute and um, something very unique, I think. Um, and then when people come down and find out about painted buntings, I mean, they're they're all in. Most people don't know about them until they move into this region because in North Carolina is the further nor- most northern spot for um, painted buntings. They only hug our coastline from about Moorhead City, about one mile all the way down through North Carolina. So one mile from saltwater. That's where their habitat for those, so they're special and unique to our area. And then as you go further south, you know, the area opens up a bit, but it's very interesting to see people get excited. Those videos that we see on social media of of a bunch of hummingbirds landing on someone's hand, are those real? And is is that okay? Where does that fall in the bird ethics conversation? Um, well, when you see those videos, that's not here. It's probably out west. We have a lot of different species of hummingbirds in the country, but mostly we just have ruby-throated hummingbirds here. They're pretty scrappy and territorial and maybe don't want to share a hand-held hummingbird feeder with anyone else. Um, I think you can you can do like a hand-held kind of feeder if you just want to be conscious and calm and um, give the birds the space that they need. It's it's about them. It's not about us and our photo as much as it is about just letting the birds take a bite. If you can sit still and they're doing their thing, it's fine. It's okay. Now, you brought in a very large, beautiful book, one of your favorite birding books. Can you tell people what that is if they wanted to get started? Yeah, I have the What It's Like to Be a Bird, um, <clears throat> excuse me, by David Sibley, and he's a, f- a field guide and author about birds, but it is so fascinating. I keep coming back to this bird. Um, I attended a program that he spoke about. This Writing this book took him over 15 years, and he asked every kind of scientific question that he could think of about anatomy and phys- physiology and what the birds are doing and why they're doing it. Um, and then he researched it. He found out and read papers um, to understand more about it. It's very interesting, something to refer back to. What's the name of it? What It's Like to Be a Bird by David Sibley. Nice. And that's this edition of Coastline, Jill Palousas of Wild Bird and Garden and Cape Fear Bird Observatory. Thank you so much for being Thank with you. us. Thank you. This was wonderful. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Find us on Facebook at WHQR's Coastline Hosted By. And, of course, find the episode along with links and resources at WHQR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.